Why don't we uh, pray one more time before we get started today, okay? Let's pray together. Ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we come before you now, and we thank you so much, Lord, for your son, Jesus. We thank you for his infinite redemption, Lord. Thank you for his eternal redemption that he secured for us. And thank you, Lord, for the fact that what we have in Christ and in the new covenant is such a clearer revelation, a clearer manifestation of your grace, and uh, even as the book of Hebrews says, the fact that a new and living way has been opened to us so that access with God has not only been made apparent, but it has been made truly accessible to the new covenant believer by faith. We ask, Lord, that as we look at the, the work of Christ as our high priest, that we would remember our great need of a priest, that we would remember that as a people that is sinful and corrupt and polluted by Adamic sin, Lord, we need representation. And we need someone to mediate, to go between. And so, Lord, we're grateful for your son Jesus that came to be that mediator, that came to be that high priest of the good things to come. So we pray that you would open our eyes so that we can see these good things and that we can understand them and we can apply them to our lives richly through your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, quickly, if you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, we are obviously in Hebrews, but Colossians chapter 2 sort of captures for us really the title of my message today, which is From Shadow to Substance. And we're going to look at this in two parts, two weeks, uh, at least. I don't know <laughs> the way that I've been working here lately, but um, it's important for us to see this, that this is the movement of Scripture. This is the way the Bible moves. It moves from the shadow, from the type, to the reality, to the substance. That's why Colossians chapter 2 is so pivotal, because it really just lays it out here for us. Beginning in verse 16, this is what the Word of God says, Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Now, that word substance literally means body. And just like you have a shadow cast from your body, when we really want to see you in fullness, we no longer look down at the shadow. The shadow is a remarkable thing. It's a proper, adequate representation of who you are. It actually depicts the real you. Uh, it is your body that is casting the shadow. But when we want to see fullness, we go to the face, we go to the actual person, we go to the, 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 the tangible manifestation of who you are. And that's exactly what Hebrews has been presenting for us all this time, that in the book of Hebrews or in the new covenant, what we have is the physical body, if you would. It is the body, the embodiment of the presence of Jesus Christ, which is in fact the fulfillment of all of the types, all of the shadows, and this passage that we have in front of us here is no exception. As a matter of fact, verses 11 through 9 is really the core argument of chapter 9. Everything sort of goes to this section, verses 11 to 14, or comes out of this section, and really everything goes back to this section. Uh, because it is so central, it is so pivotal. If you would, what the, argue, or what the author is saying here is exactly what is going to be expounded uh, beginning in verse 15 all the way to the end of the chapter. This is what's going to be just unfolded layer upon layer upon layer. Uh, what is succinctly captured here, that's what it is. So Hebrews is laying out for us again another aspect, a different facet of the supremacy of Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Now, we've looked at some of these themes already. They're sort of permeating the book of Hebrews. They're, they're, they're redundant almost. They're repeated over and over and over. Uh, matter of fact, when I was looking at sermons that people have done on the book of Hebrews and some of my favorite expositors of all, they take big swaths of Scripture, and I think that's one of the reasons why, is because it is repetitive in terms of the themes and the ideas. 
But just the more I drill down into this, I tell you what, I study the Scripture with the desire to show you what I see. And some of the things I see, I just can't skip over by doing 10 verses at one time. I just can't do it. I've got to drill down deeper into the details, and hopefully you will see the glorious things that I see so that we can rejoice together. (laughs) We see here the supremacy of Christ in a number of ways his representation, his redemption, and then his renewal. Now, we're going to leave the renewal of the sacrificial work of Christ for another day, but today we are going to be looking at Jesus as our representative and Jesus as our redeemer. So very, you know, the very first thing is Jesus in his representation. How do we see that but that Jesus is our perfect high priest? Look at what it says there in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. So that what we have in Jesus as our high priest is two things. We have Jesus coming as our eschatological priest and he comes into the eschatological temple. So uh, just jot that down. If you want to make it easier, end-time priest comes into his end-time temple. That's the way that Hebrews is developing the thought. Well, first, of course, is the idea that Jesus is our end-time priest. Now, Hebrews has belabored the fact that Jesus is in line with the Aaronic priesthood, that Jesus fulfills the Aaronic priesthood, really, and that the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedekian priesthood, both of them are pointing forward to the last priesthood, the priesthood of Christ, the ultimate priesthood, the eschatological priesthood, so that all of those priests and their priesthood were pointing toward a greater priest the typological priest, the priest that goes into the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, the priest that actually accomplishes the redemption that all the types and shadows were depicting in the old. As a matter of fact, the very fact that Jesus appeared, right? It says there, he appeared as the high priest of the good things to come. That appearance is really an inauguration, It is an inauguration of what the Bible calls the good things to come, or literally, uh, even though there's a textual variant debate here, of the good things that have come. That's kind of a stronger uh, variant and supported by, I would say, most contemporary scholars today, that what this text is actually saying is that it's not just that he appeared as the high priest of the good things that are coming, but in fact, he is the priest of the good things that have come. And the difference is a difference in one Greek word. It's either, uh, it's either uh, melanton or gegamenon, and gegamenon is the idea that things have already come. And really, here's the thing, is I think that Philip Hughes nailed it right on the head, that in the appearance of Christ and because of his priestly work, both of those truths are true. It is that he inaugurated the good things to come, but guess what? That inauguration means those things have already come. It is really what theologians call an already not yet concept right? Already we have the redemption, the eternal redemption that Jesus accomplished. Already he has cleansed us and washed us, and already we are positionally right with God, and we have access to God. But at the same time, there is a future aspect to this coming, a future aspect to the priesthood of Christ, a future realization of the access that we have. As a matter of fact, if you jump down to chapter 9, verse 15, you see that future aspect even right here. You see this, he says, for this reason he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, which will become very critical, will receive the promise of eternal inheritance. In other words, there is a future inheritance. There is a a future hope. As Peter says, look with me at uh, Peter for a a very close parallel idea here, this not yet aspect. Yes, there is an already aspect to it, but there's also a not yet aspect, a future blessing, a future inheritance. 
And that's what Peter is a perfect parallel idea to Hebrews. Uh, He says, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's present. That's present. That is realized eschatology right there. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And now this is the future. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. See, that is what Peter will go on to call the consequent glories of the sufferings of Christ. Christ suffered so that we would inherit these glorious things like a future inheritance, like a hope that will not fade away, that which is reserved for us in heaven. And that's what the coming of Jesus has done. But it's also, as I said, already a present reality. Look with me in uh, Hebrews chapter 9, going back to verse 26. You have an astounding statement here. As you consider the eschatology of the Bible, you cannot refuse the idea that the eschatology of Scripture is both realized and future. And this is realized right here, verse 26. Otherwise, he would have need to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, watch this, at the consummation of the ages... He, was, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So in the author's mind, the appearance of Jesus signifies the consummation of the ages. That is to say, the plan of God being wrapped up, the eschatology of God, the end time has been, the consummate ages have already begun. We are living in the consummate age stage of the Bible. All that we await now is a future fulfillment, a future completion. We go from inaugurated consummation to complete consummation in heaven. That's the way it moves. And as a matter of fact, I think you get in trouble in the Bible if you don't, if you don't interpret the Bible with an already not yet aspect. Already the Bible says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now that must be just the already part of it. Because you know that you're sitting in a blue pew today. <laughs> and this is not heaven. <laughs> Some of you are like, you're telling me it don't feel like heaven. <laughs> but you know that there is a future hope in which you will go to the actual presence of God to actually sit on His throne, as Revelation says, with Him, which is just symbolic of the fact that you will inherit what He inherits, that you are a co uh, a co uh, Uh, heir with Christ, that you get what he gets. He puts you in the place of that authority with him so that we rule and reign with him. That is a future reality as much as it is a present truth. And where does this uh, priest do his work? Look with me there back at Hebrews 9.11. Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come. And that is uh, obviously talking about the new covenant and what it results in. It says, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is to say, not of this creation. This is a very significant passage for interpreting um, what we can call temple themes in the Bible. The idea of temple is all over the pages of Scripture. I argued this uh, on several occasions, but you remember uh, the Emmaus conference that we did. I actually argued when I talked about the sanctuary of God that from the very beginning, uh, Eden was uh, constructed as an end, as a as a sort of a prototypical temple of God, a sanctuary. The Garden of Eden was a sanctuary. As a matter of fact, we are told in Ezekiel that the temple is on the mountain, and it talks about Eden that the the, the paradise of God is on the mountain of the Lord. And this is exact description that you get for a temple. And you have the presence of the tree of life, just like you do. Uh, the, you have the presence of the menorah in the temple. You have the presence of the tree of life at the end time temple, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. You have a reference to the tree of life there. Uh, these Edenic, uh, Edenic themes, which speak of Eden, are all over Scripture. 
Matter of fact, when they built the tabernacle and they built the temple, guess how they decorated it? They decorated it like Eden. Because Eden was sort of a prototypical, it was almost a prophetic arrangement of the ultimate heavens and earth that is to come. The Bible is taking us from creation to new creation, from the creation to the consummation. So from the very beginning, we have all of these vestiges of a new creation that is coming. Well, guess what? When it says that Jesus went into the greater, the more perfect tabernacle, as it says here, it is not describing an architectural structure. He is not talking about the temple in Jerusalem. He is not talking about a tabernacle, a tent, a physical tent with curtains. He is talking about heaven itself. It fulfills the whole typology of the priesthood in himself, of himself. When he says that he entered, what did he enter precisely? This is a big debate here because the actual original language is not as helpful as you would like. <laughs> when he says here the greater, more perfect tabernacle, it just says skene, which is tent, tabernacle. But it doesn't tell you, well, what part of the tabernacle? <laughs> You go back up to, for example, go back up to verse 3 of chapter 9. There we are given a specific detail uh, that is very helpful because it says behind the second veil there was a skene, a temple, or excuse me, a tabernacle, a tent. And then, he dis- and then he calls it what it is. It is the Holy of Holies. So there's no question what tent, what tabernacle, what skene he is talking about there. But in chapter 9, he doesn't tell us that it is the Holy of Holies, but we can only conclude that it is, that it is. And so that is going to be important because if you look, for example, at verse 12, he refers to this again when he says, he entered the holy place once for all. The holy place there is certainly symbolic of the, um, of the Holy of Holies, because that is where the blood of Jesus finds its ultimate significance. But uh, here we are being told that he entered not a physical architectural structure, but he entered what the Bible will clarify as being heaven itself. Look at verse 24, chapter 9. Verse 24 of chapter 9 says, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but, then making it crystal clear what he's talking about, into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. See, that is where the blood of Christ has its most uh, uh, significant redemptive power is in the Holy of Holies where the, 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 the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into. And that's exactly what Jesus is being called right here in this passage. He is called the the high priest of the good things to come. The high priest doesn't just go into the outer court. He goes into the holy of holies. And so this is a reference to Jesus going into the heavenly sanctuary, heavenly temple. And heaven is described as the holy of holies. Do you know what heaven is? Heaven is you and I living in the holy of holies with God for all eternity. The place that was for so many millennia blocked off where man did not have access, where man could not go, only the high priest, and only once a year could he go in to make atonement for the people. Now we are being told that that is representative of our dwelling place with God forever. So that there is a sense in which, in fact, there is no need for a temple at all. Why would you need a temple when you have God himself? Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, after all the millennial debates are over. (laughs) Because everybody agrees with Revelation 21, right? We skipped over the controversial chapter. To get to Revelation chapter 21, where it is unmistakable what's going on here. New heavens, new earth. And what does the revelator see? What does John see? Verse 22, I saw. What did he not see? I saw no temple in it. You see that? For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. 
Remarkable. Absolutely remarkable. This is God dwelling among his people. Look at Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eye, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And that is the theology in Scripture of a temple. We are told, talk about, talk about prophecy, talk about typology. We are told right here in Hebrews chapter 9 that this tabernacle was not made with hands. Now, that can either be a very scientific fact, just saying humans didn't build it, right? Or it has a greater significance in the plan of God that we are not detecting, if we don't have eyes to see and ears to hear. Um, The idea of something being built with hands has two possible ideas in the Bible. Number one, it is either pejorative, meaning it has a a negative connotation to it, because it is the works of man's hands that results in idolatry. And that is found all over the Old Testament, that the the people built their idols with their own hands. And Isaiah is uh, quite quite explicit about that. Isaiah chapter 31, verse 7, where he says that idolatry is the work of your hands. Also, there's another aspect to this, and I think this is what Hebrews is getting at, is that prophetically, prophetically, when the Bible talks about the silence of, of Scripture in terms of the building of God's temple, that you couldn't hear a hammer, that you couldn't hear a nail, that you couldn't hear any instruments building the temple. That was pointing to a future temple that would not be built with hands. In other words, that was prophetic of a transcendent temple that wouldn't be made up of man's hands. Man's hands would have nothing to do with it. Why? Well, look at, look at Hebrews chapter 8, because it is ultimately not what man built. It is what God built, if you, were, if you want to use that type of, of, of language, which Hebrews certainly does. Look at uh, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, because we have sort of a Hebrews 1 through uh, one and two, uh, chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 really sort of summarizes the whole argument again and again for us. So if you're saying, I'm lost, <laughs> you've confused me, okay, I'm about to unconfuse you, <laughs> because verses 1 and 2 are sort of a summary of everything that we're talking about. Now the main point is this. See, I told you, it's pretty clear. What has been said is this. We have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister, watch this, in the true sanctuary and in the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, not man. That's the same way as saying which the Lord pitched, which was not made with hands. And that's exactly what the old covenant silence was pointing to when God told the people Essentially, build it, but be quiet. Don't make a sound. I don't want to hear a power tool going off, (laughs) bringing it to our modern-day vernacular. I don't want to hear a skill saw. I don't want to hear a DeWalt drill. I don't want to hear any hammers or nails or anything because what you're doing is symbolic of the fact that one day I will pitch a tent, a tent that you will have nothing to do with whatsoever. Human representation only goes so far. And the heavenly tabernacle is exactly that. It is the place where our Redeemer accomplished our redemption. As we walk away from at least the priesthood aspect of this, we're reminded that Christ as our end-time high priest comforts us in three ways. Number one, He is installed as our priest. He was, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews chapter 5, for example, in Hebrews chapter 5, we are told in verse 5, just like Aaron, 
Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but he who said to him, you are my son, today I begotten you. Just as he says in another place, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. You see, God installed him to be our high priest. In other words, he is ours. He's our representative. This is the minister in the sanctuary of God that is for us. He, he ministers on our behalf. Not only that, but we also have his impeccability. Look at, uh, go back to chapter 7, because this is important to the argument as well. The fact that Jesus is the impeccable high priest of God's people. Look at verse 26. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens, and this is why that's so important, this impeccability of Jesus Christ, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. In other words, what we're looking at when we look at Jesus, our high priest, is we're looking at one who is impeccable, morally impeccable, totally righteous on our behalf so that his sacrifice is 100% efficacious. And what is the result of our high priest's work? Verse 20, uh, chapter 7, verse 25. It is the daily assurance, the daily comfort, the daily uh, a peace, peace that we derive from his intercession. It says, therefore, he is also able to save forever those that draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. In other words, the high priesthood of Christ means that he became our eternal mediator. He never stops interceding for us. But let's talk about Jesus, not just as our perfect high priest, but also Jesus as our perfect redeemer. See, Hebrews chapter 9 speaks about Jesus appearing in three stages. Now follow me here. He appears on earth to make sacrifice. That's chapter 9, verse 11. That's what that's referring to. He appeared as our high priest for the good things to come, and that he did through his cross work. But he also appears for us, watch this, in the presence of God that is in heaven, in the true tabernacle, in the heavenly sanctuary, verse 24. He appears in the presence of God for us. And there's a final appearance, isn't there? Look at uh, Hebrews 9.28. He will appear one more time. He will appear when he returns. As the author of Hebrews says, Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin. Now, that's a very, very important qualification in the verse, which means what we're talking about here is the second coming, not the first coming. The first coming is with reference to sin. In other words, he had to make atonement for sin, but not, not the next time. The next time he appears, he will appear for those that are eagerly awaiting him. In other words, he will come again in his second coming. He will appear, and all of these appearances are redemptive in nature. The purpose is for redemption. He redeems us by a sacrifice. Then he represents us in the presence of God in heaven, and then he will return again to gather the redeemed that he purchased by a sacrifice. Acts 20, 28 says that God purchased the church with his own blood, and this text tells us that he is coming back for us. But uh, really, there are two issues here that I want to consider, really speaking about Jesus and his perfect redemption. Number one, we are looking at the supremacy of Jesus' blood, and number two, we are looking at the, re uh, the supremacy of his redemption. The first thing is his blood, because notice that, uh, notice that the text makes it clear what is the basis, what is the means, what is the instrument through which Jesus came into this heavenly uh, tabernacle, this, this sanctuary not made with hands. He says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all. And so simultaneously, there is a, 
there is a setting aside of the old because he's negating that. It is not through those things. Those things, the blood of animals, the blood of bulls, the blood of goats, the blood of calves, those things have reached their typological purpose. That's not the means through which he goes into the holy place for us. But it's through his own blood. And through his own, because of its, because of his own blood, he only has to do it once. You remember? Matter of fact, Lawanita is a, a lexicon on the Greek, and that word once, they translate it like this once and never again. <laughs> That's important because it is an irrepeatable offering. You cannot repeat it, it doesn't need to be repeated. It is that sufficient, it is that efficacious. The earthly sacrifices of the old order were not only insufficient, as we're going to see, to produce the sort of cleansing that we need, they were also insufficient for the otherworldly tabernacle. The tabernacle that is not of this creation. Those, th- that blood does not work in heaven. That's what it's telling us. That blood is insufficient to take us into the holy place, to represent us before God in His presence. This only happens through the blood of Jesus. Now let's read it again, verse, verse 9, beginning of verse 11. He says, He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of bulls and, and calves, but through His own blood He entered the holy place once for all. So the emphasis is on entering. The emphasis is on the power to atone, the power to grant access, and as he says here, the power to redeem. See, that's the whole purpose. That's the whole reason why the author of Hebrews is saying, this is also important for you, because without all of this, you don't have redemption. But because Jesus did all of this for you, listen to the way he talks about a redemption. He says, he has obtained eternal redemption. I want to talk about the nature of redemption. Many people attempt to describe the death of Jesus on the cross as a great opportunity the greatest opportunity of all. And they set it out as a great potential for mankind to be saved. And certainly, we should prevail on sinners with the gospel and tell them of the hope that is found in the cross of Jesus Christ. But what Hebrews is telling us is that the cross is not just for an opportunity The cross did not just achieve an opportune moment for mankind, but it actually achieved eternal redemption. Oh, and notice what he says here. He says, he obtained it, which means he got it. It's his. It belongs to him. He takes ownership of it. And that makes a lot of sense when you study the background of the word redemption. Because redemption really speaks about the fact that someone has either been freed from slavery or freed from the marketplace of slavery. They've been bought out. They've been purchased like a slave out of the marketplace of slavery, which means there's a transfer of ownership. God takes ownership of us through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And as a matter of fact, redemption in the Bible doesn't speak about availability, it speaks about accomplishment. It doesn't speak about probability, it speaks about procurement, the idea of actually taking it to yourself. It doesn't speak about what is potential, it speaks about what is actual. Then the only question remains, for whom was redemption obtained? Because if there's one thing that's clear about the language of redemption, which doesn't come from the New Testament, folks, comes from the Old Testament. And in the background of the Old Testament, what is redeemed is obtained, just like it says. It's not as if you purchase something and then you leave it there. 
You purchase it for the purpose of taking it to yourself. And so, I want to call on John Murray in his little book, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, to help us with this. Listen to what he says. And as I, kept, I read this book, I'm like, no wonder this is my favorite book that's ever been written. <laughs> and I was very tempted to keep quoting it and quoting it and quoting it. And so what I thought I'd do is I would just tell you, go out and read it. He says this, if we concentrate on the thought of redemption, we shall be able perhaps to sense more readily the impossibility of universalizing the atonement. In other words, we cannot say that the atonement, the sacrifice, the blood is universal for all, no exceptions whatsoever. He says, because what does redemption mean? He says, it does not mean redeemability, that we are placed in a redeemable position. It means that Christ purchased us and procured redemption. That's a, that's a word I want everyone to walk out here knowing. What does procure mean? Because that's important. Listen to what he says. This is the triumphant note of the New Testament whenever it is played on the redemptive chord. Christ redeemed us to God by his blood. He obtained eternal redemption. Hebrews 9.12. He's quoting it for us. He says, he gave himself for us in order that he might redeem us from all iniquity, he quotes Titus chapter 2, verse 14. So, for, for Murray, if you want to follow the biblical train of thought on redemption, to settle for a redemption less than an eternally effective sacrifice, that, that is what he describes as a beggarly concept of redemption. Listen to what he says. It is, a, it is to beggar the concept of redemption as an effective securement of release by price and by power to construe it as anything less than the effectual accomplishment which secures the salvation of those who are its objects. Folks, this is our hope. That this is not God in the cross engaging in some sort of haphazard rescue plan, hoping that it will work out, hoping that someone will come to believe in the beauty of the cross. Not at all. Matter of fact, it was perfectly designed. It was sovereignly designed in order to take you from this age into the age to come and into heaven. Christ, he goes on, did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem to himself a people. We have the same result when we properly analyze the meaning of expiation, propitiation, reconciliation. And this is where Murray is so powerful because we don't do this with the rest of redemptive language. He says, Christ did not come to make sins expiable, which means that you will remove the guilt of sin. No, 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 no. He didn't come in order to make it expiable, right? But to actually expiate. He came to expiate sins. He says, Jesus did not come to make God reconcilable. He reconciled us to God by his he didn't come to make us propitiable either with the potential that the wrath of God would be removed from us. He came so that the wrath of God, in fact, would be propitiated on our behalf. That is good news. This is nothing less than the theology of the cross. Jesus is both the source of eternal salvation, Hebrews 5, 9, and the sacrifice of eternal redemption, Hebrews 9.12. The language of redemption is rooted in the Old Testament, where slaves are said to go free and swap owners. That's exactly what happened to us. No longer do we belong to our previous masters, sin, flesh, devil. 
Now we belong to our heavenly Father who redeemed us, who bought us, who purchased us, who paid an infinite price to obtain us through the cross. New Testament authors know all of this. They know the background of the New Testament, or the Old Testament, excuse me, and therefore they give us a full-orbed treatment. What does redemption really do? What does redemption really mean? So that by the power of God's or Christ's redeeming blood, he ransoms the many through the deepest possible condescension of the Son of God. Total liberation from sin. You want to see the good news of redemption? Turn with me to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2. God takes us from a place of undeniable enmity. I mean, just look at the world around us. You will come real, real keen on that enmity really, really quick. We hate, hating one another. The world is a hostile place, but there's no greater hostility than the hostility that we have with God before peace with God is made. Look at Titus 2.11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Now, we have to grapple with that. Does that mean people in hell today are saved? <laughs> of course not. So what he, said, what he means here, by all men, he means all men, no distinctions whatsoever, exactly as you find in other places. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people. Woman, man, slave, free, Scythian, barbarian, all are one in Christ. So every kind of person is redeemed by the blood. Verse 12. The grace of God instructs us to deny ungodliness, worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. That's right. That verse is calling Jesus God. Verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people. See that? See that uh, how he doesn't have a problem going from the language of all to the language of, of, of a limited group of people here, a people, for his own possession. That's what it means to obtain eternal redemption. It means that a possession can now be taken ownership of. God will get his possession. Zealous for good works. That's what redemption results in. It results in a people that are not just redeemed by God, but then they are empowered by God to live a holy life and to be zealous for good deeds. Does that describe your life today? Are you zealous for good deeds? You should be because if you have been redeemed, what that means, it's like a slave that has gone from an evil master to a very, very good master. How do you think that slave would serve the good master? Oh, he would want to serve him with zeal. He would want to serve him willingly. He would want to go above and beyond. He would want to give his life for that master. Well, we belonged to a very tyrannical master before we were taken ownership of by God. We had a very cruel taskmaster, sin, the devil, right? We were under the tyranny, the dominion of Satan. We were, as Paul will go on to say, we were under his, we were under his influence, under his control. We were doing his bidding. And now that we have been redeemed... As Romans chapter 6 says, we have been freed from sin to be slaves to God. And to be enslaved to God means that we want to serve God with all of our heart. Go back for a minute to Hebrews chapter 9, because this is precisely where the exposition of redemption is going. He says it himself. In verse 13, he says, For the blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, that's a long sentence. And that sentence is saying external flesh was cleansed by those things. No question about it. 
How much more, though, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, watch this, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? That's what redemption results in, serving a living God, a vibrant relationship with your Redeemer. That's what it results in. In light of his redemption, let me just summarize two things. Because the redemption of Christ is such, salvation is not a roll of the dice where God is taking a gamble with his son. Let's see what happens. Not at all. We know that God is sovereign and that he is accomplishing his perfect plan through Jesus Christ. And so we can take great comfort in things like evangelism and the power of the gospel. We don't need to doubt the efficacious nature of the gospel. Do you get discouraged when the gospel doesn't seem to be effective around you? Don't be, because God uses the gospel to fulfill his sovereign ends whether that is to harden someone in their unbelief or to soften someone, to give them a new heart. The other thing is that redemption procures for us a hope that is secure. In other words, we can, we can live at peace because we know redemption has been secured. Our redemption is complete. As Peter said, it is reserved for us. It is in heaven. Therefore, what would, what, would, uh, what would Hebrews tell us to do? Don't waver. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 with me, just to bring it home to the language. Hebrews chapter 10, beginning in verse 23, we begin to have some imperatives. <laughs> You're looking at a long argument in Hebrews, and finally we come to a command. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. You see that? Without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And why do we know that he is faithful? Because look at the, look at the eternal redemption that he secured in his son. We do not need any further evidence of our redemption. That's what it means. The fact that it has been secured, it has been procured, it has been obtained, it is eternal, that means that God gave us the surest word on the matter. The redemption by the blood of Jesus. And lastly, we need to look up as our redemption draws near. What it means is that we are headed for our consummation, our own personal eschatology, if you would. We are all on the path to glory, and we need to walk with an eternal perspective. That's what it means. It means that we have been redeemed, therefore we will be obtained by God. Doesn't that want to make you live eternally minded? It makes the matters of this world so dim, doesn't it? The fact that this world is so fleeting and passing and temporal, it is so unpredictable and unstable and unsure. You know, I reflect on this all the time because um, as I am preaching to the lost, I often use the example of a friend of mine from when I was a child, when I was in elementary school. Um, My best friend, in fact, uh, his name was Philip. And, you know, Philip was the toughest, strongest guy you ever meet in your life. Football player, jock, good-looking guy, very popular, invincible in every way. Well, when Philip turned 21 years old, him and a couple other of my good friends decided that they would go to Vegas to go party for his birthday. And on the way back, going 100 miles an hour, Philip fell asleep at the wheel. And the car tumbled and flipped over, oh, about a dozen times. Philip wore his seatbelt 
and the engine crushed him to death. He didn't survive. My other two friends survived. They were thrown hundreds of yards away from the crash. They both landed on barbed wire fencing. One of them ended up in a vegetative state in a coma, and the other one with a fractured spine. And it just reminds me, when I preach that example to the lost, it just reminds me, life is so fragile. And our lives are no different. You and I can go right out of this church and get in a horrific car accident. Good thing we don't believe in, you know, word of faith, sort of name it and claim it. (laughs) That'd be almost like a reverse name it and claim it. But you don't speak things into existence is what I'm saying. But our lives are fragile nonetheless. Philip was 21 years old. He had his whole life ahead of him. Everybody expected him to play football in college. They thought, I mean, his life is just beginning. And it was snuffed out in a moment's instant. And you know what? Our lives are just as fragile and maybe just as brief. But when you know that your redemption is secure, when you know that you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, that it is a settled issue, how much more should we live with an eternal perspective knowing that we could literally be moments away from entering into our eternal inheritance? That's what the Bible means by purifying hope. That's what grace produces in your life. It it produces a life of holiness, not a life of cavalier disobedience. And that's what His redemption does. Let's pray and ask God to make us those types of people with that perspective. Father, we ask that You would give us an eternal perspective on our lives, Lord, knowing that You have redeemed us for an eternal purpose And we use these words like eternity and eternal redemption. Oh, Lord, but you know how sure they are and how meaningful those terms are. Those are not just theological jargon. That's not just abstract theory. Lord, it is concrete reality. And we know that one day, Lord, we will be, as it were, procured by God. We will be taken in to his heavenly sanctuary to live with you forever. And so, God, help us to live a life worthy. Forgive us, O Lord, of our sin. Cleanse us, O Lord, of unrighteousness. Make us useful for the master, and then help us to get to work, not to be idle, not to squander the redemption that we have. Lord, give us the grace to do this. Empower us, not by the power of the flesh, not by the strength of our own might, because we have none, but by the power of your Spirit, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.